Now let's read from the letter that Peter wrote, the second letter, chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, and that's uh, on pages 1, uh, 22, 3, and 4 in the Pew Bibles. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. This is the word of the Lord. Our Old Testament lesson for today comes from the book of Ruth, uh, first chapter, verses 6 through 18, on page 267 of your Bibles. It would be great for you to have them open during the course of our meditation. Ruth 1, 6 through 18.
Let us hear God's word. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Verse 8, Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. Verse 11, but Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons? who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, Naomi said, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. This is the word of the Lord. This week I read that the great German poet Goethe declared once that this book that we're reading, the book of Ruth, declared that it was the perfect story and the loveliest complete work on a small scale. Someone else that I read said that what Ruth does in this passage that we've just read, quote, towers as a majestic monument of faith above the biblical landscape. I think that both of these things are true. And, you know, being new to a German-speaking land, I'm certainly not going to argue with Goethe. But at the same time, we don't want to reduce this story, do we, to a pretty sentimental tale, something that's just lovely. We don't want to speed past, do we, the pain of these women 
even in our desire to make Ruth one of our heroes, which she is. So I think that to experience the true loveliness and the true majesty of Ruth's gospel, as we're calling this, we've got to keep walking with her, to keep walking alongside her and Naomi and Orpah along the road that is marked with their great suffering. Ruth and Orpah, let's remember, are barren women. And Naomi is a widow who's also lost her two sons. We can get just a glimpse of the weight of the sorrow that they carry through the words of Nicholas Wolterstorff. He's a Christian philosopher who himself has lost one of his own dear sons. He says this, I am at an impasse, and you, O God, have brought me here. From my earliest days, I believed in you. For me, your yoke was easy. On me, your presence smiled. But noon has darkened, and where are you in the darkness? The world has a hole in it now, and I shall look at the world through tears. Naomi and Ruth and Orpah, they see the path that's stretched out ahead of them only through teary eyes. And I think we're called as God's people to walk this road with them. And I think as we walk this road faithfully with them, the story gets happy, so hold on. But as we walk this sad road with them, I think we're having our attention called to at least these three things. First, the story itself asks us, is this road of suffering a dead-end road? Second, the story takes us right up to a fork in the road and asks us, where will we turn at the fork in the road? Finally, the story asks us, can we see a new road opening up through the tear-filled eyes of faith? And are we willing to walk it? So we'll look at a dead-end road. We'll look at a fork in the road, and we'll look, finally, at a new road. So first, the dead-end road. You know, we didn't hear any dialogue. If you look back in the first five verses of Ruth last week, just the narrator's prose. But this book is actually packed with dialogue. Over 60% of this book is words exchanged between people. Before we get there, though, the narrator tells us that news has come from Judah that there is bread finally in Bethlehem. They're no longer breadless there. God has blessed his people again. And Naomi recognizes this blessing. And she says, daughters, let's pack up our things and let's go, Ruth and Orpah, to Judah. And then a little ways down the road, the dialogue begins, verse 8. Naomi stops. And then she recites the speech that surely she must have been practicing all along the road as she walked. And so the very first voice, the very first bit of dialogue from a human in this story are these words. Go back to Moab. Don't come to the promised land with me. In everything that Naomi says here, there's both, on the one hand, amazing faith, 
And there's also weak and frail faith. It's amazing, for example, to hear her think of these women's needs ahead of her very own needs, to hear her bless them as she does. And she actually uses the very personal name of her God, Yahweh, intimate only to Israelites. It's beautiful to hear her give a benediction to them in verses 8 and 9 and pronounces God's covenant loving kindness. We'll talk about hesed, this word, later. But she pronounces this benediction upon them, even as they head back to Moab. It's wonderful to see her kiss them affectionately as they part. The last thing that Naomi wants for these daughters-in-law of hers is a dead end. She's thinking of them even in her sorrow. It's amazing. But on the other hand, in the midst of her sorrow, Naomi doesn't quite recognize, does she, that it's among God's people of promise that God commands his blessing, his everlasting blessing, Psalm 133, even life that never ends. And so Naomi can't imagine why Judah, why Bethlehem, why Israel might be a better place for Ruth and Orpah than Moab. She isn't thinking about Moabite child sacrifices. She isn't thinking of the way that the stories of Yahweh, their God, in Israel and his grace would surely fade out of Ruth and Orpah's memories as they lived in Moab apart from God's people. And so in a way, by telling them to go back to Moab, Naomi is asking these two women and their descendants for generations to go down a road that for them would be a dead-end road. Why? Well, as we said last week, our suffering may or may not stop us from believing in God's existence. You know, it's only very recently that people who have suffered have responded by saying, there is no God. That's a new sort of thing. But still believing in God, our suffering could lead us to stop believing something even more important, that God is not only there, but that God is good. Or, like Naomi, we might believe this. We might believe that God's goodness, yes, still works for other people, but just not for us. And that's an awful, awful place to be, isn't it? When you're not scared that God is absent, but rather that he is present and maybe he doesn't care. And I think that Ruth's gospel, this wonderful book, is not just lovely, but that it's a response to precisely this kind of fear that we all feel, isn't it? The fear that the road toward God's heart is a dead-end road after all. Through her grief, that's what Naomi sees ahead of her, a dead-end road. As she looks to Bethlehem, and so she sends Ruth and Orpah back to Moab. After Naomi blesses Orpah and Ruth, verse 10, she kisses them, and then they do the predictable protest. No, 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 mother, we will go back with, your, with you to your people. We'll stay with you. And this forces Naomi to give part two of her speech. All the practical reasons now that they should leave her and go back to Moab. Sensible, logical reasons this time. And again, she's thinking of their well-being. 
She even gives up trying to get them to go back to their real mothers as she did earlier. And now she starts calling them affectionately, verses 11 and 12. My daughters, my daughters, I'm doing this for you. I'm sending you back because I care. You won't be blessed in Bethlehem if you're standing next to me. You won't find a husband being attached to me. Why? Verse 13, she says, because sticking by me is going to make your experience more bitter still because the hand of the Lord is turned against me. And then more tears. I'm sorry that this is so heavy for us. But here we are. I wonder if you've ever cried these kinds of tears. You know, there's the tears that we cry at first when we realize that we've had a great loss. But then you think of your Lord and you wonder, wait, why has my Lord, whom I love and whom I've served, allowed this to happen to me? And then a second bitter wave of tears comes on for us. And And these are the tears that these three women are are crying in verse 14. As the flow of the tears starts to, to slow down, the three women look up and they realize that set before them now is a fork in the road. Naomi wants them to go back. They've considered going forward. One road leads to Moab, the other to Judah, to Bethlehem. But what we see right away is that these women are seeing different things, aren't they, as they look down these roads. Naomi looks toward Bethlehem and to Judah, the promised land, and she sees no hope and no future for herself. And she sees no hope and no future for Ruth and Orpah. All she sees is that God has blessed other people, those people that have been living there, the people that now have bread after a famine. And she thinks, well... I can at least have some of their blessing for myself, and then I can die in peace in my homeland. The road toward Bethlehem has bread at the end of it for her, but seen through her teary eyes, nothing else on which Naomi or her daughters could live. And so it's ultimately a dead-end road for her. And she thinks, therefore, for Ruth and Orpah as well. Naomi looks toward Moab the other way, and she sees another dead-end road for herself. But as she looks down towards Moab, she sees, you know what? Maybe there's less of a dead-end for Ruth and for Orpah down that way. Orpah herself looks down the road to Bethlehem, and she ultimately agrees with Naomi, yes, That road is a dead end for me as well. There's a better chance of finding a husband, making a family, achieving significance and security, these things that I desperately need as a a widow woman in Moab than there would be in Judah. And she goes back. But then Ruth looks down both of these roads. And she comes, doesn't she, to a very different conclusion. She looks down the road toward Bethlehem, and what does she see? She sees, well, difficulty and vulnerability, a lack of opportunity. She sees herself being a foreigner among a strange people and all of the rest. But for Ruth, when Naomi says to her, go back to your gods in Moab, for Ruth, there's just no way. There's just no way she's going to do that. 
And that is part three now. That is because for Ruth, when she looks down the road towards Bethlehem, she sees through her tear-stained eyes a new road that's opened up in front of her. For Ruth, the road to Bethlehem and beyond is not easy and it's not safe. But she realizes that it is good because she realizes that the God of Israel, the Lion of Judah, though he is not safe, and as Lewis tells us, is no tame lion, is nevertheless good, and good for and to a woman like her. And so then she says, verses 16 and 17, some of the most remarkable words that we'll read in our Bibles. Let's read them again, shall we? Verse 16 Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And then, to show how dead serious she is, Ruth makes it clear that the only dead end road for her would be a road that leads her away from Naomi, away from Judah, away from her Lord. And she says, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Now, Ruth is way younger than Naomi, but she's ready to commit to this old woman and to this old woman's Lord, who is now, of course, her Lord, until she dies? No, actually, she'll stay with her, she says, and with her God beyond death beyond the grave. It's been said that these first words from Ruth in the book that bears her name soar on the wings of rhythm. But I think that their beauty is actually nothing compared to their conviction. One scholar notes that only Abraham in our Bibles comes close to Ruth's radical level of confidence in her Lord. But when you think about Abraham and his circumstances, Abraham heard the clear voice of God. He had the clear promises of God sealed to him. And he had a family with which to travel from Ur and along the way to the promised land. But Ruth doesn't get a verbal call from God. She has no promises of blessing that that we read about. And her only companion is this old widow, Naomi. And so I think that Ruth stands alone in terms of sheer guts, in terms of radical commitment and confidence. Confidence what? That God is God and that God is good, whether her life is full of joy or whether it has deep sorrow. One commentator says, here we have one woman that has chosen another woman in a world where life depends on men. There is no radical decision in all, there's no more radical decision in all the memories of Israel. And I think that's very radical. But I'd also like to suggest that the more radical decision here was her decision to choose this woman's God. Ruth, who lacks all of these concrete promises of Abraham, makes this mighty act of faith. And so we have to ask ourselves here, as we stand on the road with these women, how can Ruth see a new road opening when others see a dead end? How can she do this? 
I think that if Ruth were among us this morning and we interviewed her, she would say, you know, from my perspective, all the might and all of the radical commitment is actually on God's side. I'm just responding to his commitment to me. When Ruth looks down the road to Bethlehem, she sees a people there who have been loved. Why? Because they're so lovely? No, in spite of their unloveliness. In the years since she's come into Naomi's family, she's discovered God's commitment to Israel because of their great size and significance? No, but despite their puny size and their insignificance. Because of their great faith? No, for they're a grumbling people that needs to constantly be called back to repentance. And so they, Ruth sees at the end of this road a God and a people a God who loves his people despite their puny faith. And she's learned, therefore, that this God is different. With this God, it's not the greatness of your faith that counts, but the greatness of the one in whom you and your often weak and faltering faith rests. And isn't that so important for us to grasp as we stand at the road, the fork in the road? That it's not the strength of our faith, but the strength of of our God in whom we put our weak faith that counts. You know, some people today read the stories that Ruth herself heard growing up in Naomi's house about our heroes of the faith. And some people say, ah, now here's the stories of people of great faith. And it's true enough. But I think the reason that Ruth can see through her tears that this is not a dead-end road, but the road leading to promise and goodness and a good God is because when Ruth heard about Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Rachel and Leah and Joseph, she didn't just come away thinking, what great stories of such great people. But she heard those stories and came away thinking, What a great God who is good to these people, even when they're not good to him, who's committed to these people, even when their commitment to him falters. What else could have impressed Ruth about Israel's God? She's not going to Bethlehem because the Israelites there never suffered. They had famines. They were invaded. All kinds of things happen to them, just like they happen to every other nation. But what Israel had that Ruth realized was God's hesed. A wonder, if you know one Old Testament Hebrew word, this should be it. And you have to use that kind of Swiss German thing to say it. Can you do that? Let's do it together, shall we? Chesed. Not bad. Your homework is to practice that. And Naomi mentions this, it's kind of hidden in verse 8 for us. This is God's covenant faithfulness. It's God's loyalty. It's God's, if you like, stick to through death and even beyond. Hesed is, in our Bibles, translated love, loving kindness, mercy. There are so many English words that we need to try to get at it. Uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones has this wonderful children's Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible, and every adult should have a copy in their library. And she calls this God's never-stopping, 
never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. I think Goethe would like that too. And so while Naomi, at least at this moment, doesn't feel that God is showing this loving loyalty to her right now, Ruth, her daughter-in-law, knows that whether God is pleased with his people and is blessing his people, or whether he's displeased with what they're doing and disciplining them in love, whether he's pouring out his blessings on them or whether he's refining and perfecting his people through suffering, whatever God is doing with his people, Ruth sees it as an expression of God's loving loyalty, his hesed. She knows that he never stops. She's experienced that he never gives up. She's heard and read that he breaks no promises, that he loves always, that he loves forever. And so all of us today stand with Naomi and Ruth and Orpah at a fork in our road, don't we? And the question for all of us is, which road are we going to take? I think that Ruth's unspoken challenge to Naomi in her gracious answer and her challenge to us today through the Spirit is this. Let's trust together that God is not against us, but for us. Let's trust that his promises to Abraham's children apply to our family as well. Let's trust that everything that comes into our lives, whether it's pleasant or difficult, is meant to save us and to lead us home towards God's own heart. This, Ruth tells us, is what we know about God from these scriptures of ours. Let's trust that this God that we serve is the same God today as he was yesterday and will be forever. You know, Ruth and her great-grandson David, little spoiler for you, in the midst of each of their sufferings, both make this important point, and they underscore that even death will not separate them from the God they serve and from his people. And they believed that in faith. But here we are in 2018, the year of our Lord, and we have, don't we, even more assurance and evidence than Ruth and her great-grandson David did, don't we? Hasn't Christ, our Lord, said to each of us that no matter what it might cost him, wherever you go on this road toward the heart of my Father, I will go with you? Hasn't the Lord Jesus himself said on his road to Calvary, where you die, I will die. Where you are buried, I will be buried. But not even death will separate me from you. You know, when we hear stories like the ones that Ruth has heard in Naomi's family, and like the one that here we're reading about Ruth, how can we not say, you know what? These people's faith is surprising, but not nearly as surprising, not nearly as compelling, not nearly as life-changing as the faithfulness of their God. I want to be like Ruth, don't you? I want to be like her great-grandson, David. I want to be like Daniel and Sarah and Rahab and Esther in one way or another. But what I really, really want is to be with their God, the God who was with them. 
to make him my God. Because I can see now that if he is my God, he will never stop. He will never give up. He'll never break. He'll always and forever love me all the way home. So my call to you this morning is let's walk together, shall we? Down the new road that is opened up to us through the commitment of our Lord Jesus Christ to us that goes through death and then beyond and out the other way. A road toward the heart of God is never a dead-end road. It is always, always a new road. And so will you walk that road with me today? Gracious God, we pray that our Lord Jesus, who has blazed the trail through death and beyond the grave into resurrection life, would blaze afresh a trail for us, that we might follow him all of our days through sorrow as well as through joy, through, through suffering as well as through blessing and achievement. We ask that our hearts would grow tender towards him, that our faith, though weak, would look up to him because he's strong. Make us strong even in our weakness as we look to our Savior, the Lord Jesus, to bring us all the way home to your own heart, our Heavenly Father. And seal us, we pray, for your courts above by your Holy Spirit. And we ask it for Jesus, our Savior's sake. Amen.